Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we are joined by the Director of the Royal African Society, Dr Nick Westcott, a former diplomat with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office who previously worked as the European Union Managing Director for Africa to discuss the different realities and perspectives of the continent of Africa and in particular the East African Groundnut Scheme. Nick is also attached to the School of African and Oriental Studies. Thank you for joining us today, Nick. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? It's very nice to be here. Um, I, as you say, my, most of my career has been uh, dedicated to uh, work as a diplomat, uh, mainly for the Foreign Office, but also for the European Union. But I started life almost as a geographer. Um, I remember tossing up uh, one night before uh, choosing my university course, whether I'd go for history or geography. So I went somewhere where they did both, so I could always change from one to the other. And in the end, the history degree I was doing had enough geography in it to make it interesting. And in fact, the geographers in this college also spent a lot of time doing history. So um, I regard myself as almost a geographer. And uh, I then carried on, did a PhD in African history before joining the Foreign Office. And in some ways, my life has come full circle and I'm back doing both geography and history at uh, the Royal African Society, as well as a heavy dose of culture and everything else to do with Africa. So. It has been a sort of continuing but not exclusive theme throughout my life, both looking at geography, which is in some ways an essential skill for anybody who wants to be a diplomat. You're there to understand why countries are the way they are, why people behave the way they do because of where they live. And uh, I found my training in that area invaluable throughout my life. And alongside geography, one of your many links to Zenab is through the Royal African Society, is that right? Yes, uh, Zainab Badawi is the chair of the Royal African Society uh, and uh, recruited me to be the director when I retired from the Foreign Office. And uh, we work very closely together to bring uh, basically reality, African realities to Britain. And that's the, the vocation, if you like, to help people in this country see Africa as it really is, as opposed to what they may think it is. And we work very closely on that, which is why we gave a joint lecture at the Royal Geographical Society last year uh, to explain what we meant by this. You've said in the past that the perception of geography is an important thing, and you just mentioned African realities there. Um, what do you mean by those terms and, and that statement? We explored this quite a lot in the lecture, and I illustrated it to some extent with a two pictures of Africa. One was of an elephant. And uh, people will look at elephants in different ways. For uh, Westerners, for British people, they'll think, oh, that's a very nice wild animal that we want to preserve. For an African farmer, it may be a pest that comes and raids his crops. Uh, for a poacher, it's uh, his main source of income. Uh, so people see things in different ways, depending on their relation to it. The same also with an African slum uh, picture I took from Luanda, because uh, Africa has been transformed. People still think of it as mud huts and big game, 
whereas the reality of Africa now is urban sprawl, vibrant culture, and mobile technology. And that is what uh, Africans today are using. And it connects them to the rest of the world. And uh, the urban sprawl, slums, if you like, is actually a hive of activity, innovation, and enterprise. And that is where a lot of Africa's growth is going to come from in the future. So uh, people see things in different ways, depending on your point of view. And our objective in this talk, both by talking about African history and contemporary realities and trends for the future, was for people to see that Africa has changed enormously from their uh, common mental perception and is an extraordinarily dynamic and growing continent. A fewer Hersk um, questioned in The Guardian earlier this year why Africa's coronavirus successes are being overlooked. Is that an example of outsiders only focusing on the continent's failures? It's uh, sadly a, a fact of life that bad news sells better than good. And the fact that uh, this is actually good news coming out of Africa means that it has been overlooked. Um, and it's very interesting to explore why Africa, which is normally seen as a festering hotbed of disease and uh, disaster, has actually, in medical terms, escaped extraordinarily lightly. And there are two reasons. Firstly, African governments reacted very quickly. They are used to the challenge of infectious diseases. They had the Ebola uh, pandemic uh, a while back, which was, you know, far more fatal, actually, than COVID. And uh, again, very infectious. So they knew to take this seriously, which many Western countries didn't. And uh, that is entirely to their credit. And secondly, the demography of Africa is uh, completely different. There are far fewer sick old people in Africa, a far higher proportion of young people. So from that point of view, the proportion of uh, vulnerable population was a lot smaller. Um, but sadly, COVID has still had an enormous economic impact on Africa. But uh, the uh, reality is that uh, Africa has done much better on this. And that is something that needs to be celebrated. But uh, still, the economic impact means there are good reason to carry on supporting Africa and helping it through this crisis. From memory, the author, uh, Afua Hersk, um, tries to touch upon some of the smaller successes, well, quite large successes, like the Senegalese $1 testing kits and the very low death count in, in Ghana. Yes, she's, she's quite right. And uh, I mean, she's a great champion of pointing out these uh, realities as well. Uh, there has been, uh, and this is true not just of COVID, a lot of innovations in Africa. The African CDC, uh, Centre for Disease Control, uh, has been remarkably successful. Africa has not been able to afford the uh, kind of investments, uh, either in health or in economic support, that Western uh, countries have done. But uh, nevertheless, people have managed to survive because they're very good at surviving and they're very inventive and uh, innovative. And that is something certainly to celebrate. Okay, there are not African pharmaceutical countries developing vaccines and Africa should in due course get its fair share of the vaccines. 
but it has responded in its own way. And it points out that there is increasing confidence in Africa that they can find the solutions to their problems. Uh, The big challenge remains economic uh, in generating enough uh, income coming into the continent to enable those solutions to then be multiplied. There have, of course, been uh, quite a few misguided outside influences in history in regards to the continent of Africa. Uh, Many have led to failed outcomes and entrenched misunderstanding, um, as we've just been talking about not celebrating African innovation, for example. Could you elaborate specifically on the failed East African groundnut scheme? Yes, this is uh, a... I think one of the most infamous development disasters of all time, Um, sadly forgotten, because uh, from my point of view, having been involved for a long time in African development, you learn as much from the failures as you do from the successes. So in the 1940s, immediately after the Second World War, when uh, the world was in a bad state, food was very scarce and very expensive. Britain was still on rationing for years after the war because of this scarcity. And there was real worry that uh, the world population was going to grow faster than the food supply. And so uh, the British colonial government conceived, uh, encouraged by uh, Unilever, the company that produced most of the oil seeds necessary, a scheme to convert 5,000 square miles of what was then Tanganyika, into a giant mechanised peanut farm growing groundnuts, which would produce uh, lots of additional groundnut oil that you could make into margarine for what they like to call the, the harassed housewife of Hounslow, to eke out her rations. And this was, you know, a great innovative uh, visionary scheme to transform Africa from sort of little peasant farmers digging away on that little plot of ground into a, a modern farming uh, metropolis mm-hmm. where, you know, the latest uh, technology was going to transform life uh, and the economy. And it failed. It failed disastrously. It was a complete failure from the outset. And the British government invested and eventually wrote off £36 million, which in those days was a huge sum. That would be equivalent nowadays to over £1 billion was invested in the scheme. At a time when Britain was strapped for cash as well as for food. So uh, it was a huge miscalculation. It became a major political scandal to waste that amount of money. And it was one of the things that actually helped bring down the Labour government in 1951. One of the reasons the Conservatives won was that they they made hay with this this disaster um, to brand the Labour government as incompetent. And so it had real real world consequences. Uh, But uh, why did it fail is the interesting question and that's relevant. And one of the reasons it failed was that it was politically motivated, politically driven, and ignored the science, the nature, and the geography, and indeed the finance. All the finance people said, we don't think this is a good idea. The agricultural experts said, we don't think this is a good idea. The locals said, we can't understand why you're doing this. But the politicians said, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, We must press on. Uh, this is... Uh, 
don't want doubters here. We just wanted people to go and do it. And, you know, dig up the bush, bash it down, show that we are smarter than the locals. And uh, they weren't. <laughs> yeah. The Wagogo people who lived in central Tanganyika, where this was a very dry part of the country, knew that it didn't rain very often. And therefore, it was quite good for keeping cattle, but useless for, for growing much by way of crops. Also, uh, this location was miles from anywhere. There was no infrastructure. And trying to run a fleet of modern bulldozers and tractors where there was no petrol, no roads, uh, no repair facilities, you know, they all broke down and they couldn't fix them. So, but, uh, you know, they had not done the background work and they thought you know, modern science would solve all the problems and where there's no rain and there's uh, no manure and the soil is not very fertile no it doesn't and that political will you mentioned that was driven by neo-malthusian thinking is that right there was genuine global was, concern about food shortages the, the, there was a genuine there were genuine world food shortages um, there had been uh, a real active debate in the 1930s over whether uh, Africa was succumbing to irreversible soil erosion and desertification. And there were some people who argued that African peasant farmers were uh, inefficient, old-fashioned, stuck in the mud, incompetent, and what was needed was modern scientific agriculture. There were others who said, no, Africans are quite rational people and you just give them a market incentive to grow something and they'll grow it. Grow it. And in fact, they had done the coffee, cocoa, cotton, uh, production of all of them had uh, shot up, mainly grown just by Africans uh, for their own profit. So there was, a, there was a debate going on about this um, as to how best to develop African agriculture. And the war transformed this in two ways. Firstly, uh, the war had shown that the state could usefully get involved in infrastructure and uh, production. And that was something that had not existed before. So the groundnut scheme was a state-run scheme. The original idea came from a private company, but the private company knew this was a risky venture. It didn't want to risk its own money. So it was delighted to find that the Labour government, which believed in socialist uh, principles and um, nationalised industries, uh, they were delighted to find the government would put up all the money for this. Uh, and secondly, the war had shown that uh, you could find solutions to most problems uh, if you uh, gave it sufficient attention. Uh, for example, inventing mulberry harbours so you could land troops where there wasn't a harbour. And the war had been full of innovations, bouncing bombs, you name it. And they thought, well, let's do the same to develop Africa as we did in the war. The difference was that in the war, money was no object. You just had to do this to survive. Once the war was over, money became important again. And the Treasury were extremely dubious about this scheme, and quite rightly so, because it was untested. And whereas in the war, you had to do things fast for survival, after the war, it's wiser 
to do things slowly. And uh, some of the lessons from the groundnut scheme were test before you try uh, something. They thought they could learn as they went, but they were wrong. They would have done well to begin with a pilot scheme. Now, the reason they were in a rush was because the Labour government wanted to increase the margarine ration before the next election, which is in 1950. So they said, right, let's start the scheme in 1947, and we've got to have 600,000 tonnes a year by 1950. So we can say, look, we've doubled the rations and going to the electorate. As it was, they had to go to the electorate saying, sorry, we lost your money. The very old adages, um, the d- test before you you go into a project, research. Look before you leap. <laughs> There's another one, which is if at first you don't succeed, um, rather than just try again, find out why you didn't succeed before you try again. <laughs> yes, which is again a, a major fault of this story about the East African groundnut scheme in Tanzania, isn't it? That they, they kept on trying in spite of the conditions. Yes, year after year, as the rain continued to fail to fall. Um, But what struck me, and I I came across this story when I was doing my um, PhD research, but what struck me was uh, the whole argument throughout the process that, you know, we've got a rush, uh, there's a political deadline, um, we just sort of plough on, uh, we do the best we can, you know, can do, make do, and the rest. Uh, And... Uh, even when it was obviously becoming a failure, you double, you don't quit, right? We just need more investment to make it work. This was so familiar of so many, not just development projects, but all government projects that I've seen. And the fact that the experts, the scientific advisors, and the locals had predicted exactly what would go wrong and had been explicitly ignored and excluded was very familiar to a whole set of other development schemes, both in Tanzania, where after independence, all these lessons were completely forgotten. They were That was the imperial times. That was colonial. And no wonder it didn't work. They were useless. And then proceeded to make exactly the same mistakes again, particularly over socialization of agriculture, which was a failure. And building sort of massive infrastructure projects at huge cost, but for very little economic benefit, setting up industries that were never going to be economic, uh, and indeed, you know, lost money year after year. The classic example is the Abiyakuta steel mill in Nigeria, which has been losing money for 30 years. So rather than creating wealth, it's a drain on the taxpayer. But, you know, Nigeria had to have its own steel industry. It was import substitution, and it was economically unviable, uh, but it has become politically impossible to close it down because, you know, 5,000 people are employed there, losing money. So many development projects launch off without a proper appreciation of the scientific realities and the geographical realities. Had John Strachey, the Minister of Food in 1940, been better Uh, trained in agriculture as opposed to classical uh, literature, which is what he did his degree in, he might have perhaps listened to the experts a bit. But uh, uh, that was sadly not the case. So I'm very strongly in favour of development projects being very closely linked to follow the science, as we say these days, uh, and 
to people who understand the environmental consequences or implications and context within which they're taking place. But this political imperative, that can apply to anything. I mean, look at uh, HS2 or Crossrail. The, my book begins with a cartoon from Spike Milligan uh, of a boy and his dad gazing up into the sky, looking at Concord as it flies by. And the boy says, what's that, dad? And the dad says, that son is a flying groundnut scheme. <coughs> We've had a lot of flying groundnut schemes since then. At least Concord got off the ground. <laughs> you mentioned the steel mill in um, Nigeria. Um, I was just wondering there, as you were speaking, did the project um, in Tanzania uh, in the 20th century change international policy towards agricultural schemes um, of this size and shape, which we would now describe as a mega project? Yes, it did. And at the same time, a number of other ambitious agricultural schemes were launched um, by uh, the Colonial Development Corporation, it was called. The Granite Scheme was run by the Overseas Food Corporation. And these were two twin organisations. And the Colonial Development Corporation became the Commonwealth Development Corporation. It's now known as CDC Group and is one of the most successful implementers of uh, development projects, uh, I'd say, in the world. It, it, and that's because they learned the lesson. They scrapped these ambitious technological schemes. There was another one for egg production in the Gambia, which is another famous disaster. And they said, right, if we're going to do production, we will do either long-term environmentally-based uh, agricultural projects like forestry uh, or tea plantations, uh, and other than that, we'll leave African farmers to decide what they should grow. Let them calculate what's going to work in this environment uh, and, uh, and take the profit. And that worked really well. So there was a real transformation towards peasant-based agriculture, you know, let the farmers decide, uh, rather than try and impose on them your own uh, concept of what's going to work or not. And again, that, that has to some extent, been forgotten since independence. And governments are always, Af African governments, the developing country governments everywhere, are rushing to say, right, the state will uh, transform this country. And there are still schemes where outside investors from Brazil, from the Gulf, uh, from China, buy up vast tracts or are given access to vast tracts of empty African country to transform. And I don't know one that has succeeded of these land grabs uh, because the environment is difficult. It always has been difficult and the local people know how best to deal with it. Of course, the environment is also getting more difficult with climate change and that is going to require more innovation but again, it should be led by the people who understand and work this environment uh, with help from science, but not trying to impose solutions on them. So there has been some learning, but it's a lesson that needs to be learned, sadly, over and over again. Each new generation thinks it's smarter than the one before and very often isn't. We've talked a lot about the impact on British imperial projects um, and agricultural policy. Was there an impact on Tanzania, we would now call Tanzania? 
it was striking in that there was almost no impact on Tanganyika from this scheme, possibly because it failed and left very little trace. The local people profited from it. They profited from growing food to sell to what were known as the ground nutters, the people working on the scheme. Um, and uh, several Africans made their fortunes uh, from the scheme. But most of the profit went to expatriate uh, engineering companies, Molems, uh, Taylor and Woodrow, uh, and accounting companies like uh, what was Coopers and Librands, uh, now PwC, uh, who made uh, quite a lot of money out of supporting the scheme, even though it failed. So it had one effect that everybody said is that it put Tanganyika on the map. Before the Grand Art Scheme, nobody's heard of it. It was one of Britain's least known African colonies. And afterwards, everybody said, ah, yes, that's where the groundnut scheme was. But I'm not sure. It was more a question of notoriety than fame. Could we shift now uh, to focusing on the importance of geography in getting development right? The Kibera slum is in Nairobi, and that's where 60% of Nairobians live on only 6% of the land in Kenya. Could you explain how this might be perceived as a bad thing, but also could be understood as a as a good thing, um, or even impressive, in light of what we were saying at the start of our conversation about perception? Yeah, I, I mentioned at the beginning that, uh, if you like, the, the dynamic heart of Africa is now in the urban areas, not in the rural areas. Like in all developing societies, and particularly those with a rate of democratic growth as fast as Africa's, there is always rural urban migration. We saw the same in China. It underpinned a large part of the Chinese industrial revolution in the 20th century. And it is driving economic dynamic growth in Africa too. Now, many of the people coming to town come, uh, like Dick Whittington, to make their fortunes. They don't have it already. And they have to find a place to live and they tend to pack together in places where they have friends and relations uh, who can put them up. The Royal African Society runs a film festival every other year, Film Africa. And invariably, some of these films are based in these slums. There was a fantastic film in the last uh, festival, which finished only a couple of weeks ago, um, called uh, The Ghost and the House of Truth, which is set in Lagos, uh, slum area. And in, in some ways, the, the shanty town itself is the star of the show. And the same in Kibera in Nairobi. These are densely packed, and that is a feature you find of all early evolving towns. It was the same in Dickensian in London. Um, people coming into the towns first packed together in uh, very tightly um, overcrowded areas often in Sandry, it's not a great place to live, uh, but people have no choice. But they are full of innovation. And one of the striking things about Kibera is the degree of community self-help that is going on there. And there are a number of organizations that ensure that there is education, uh, that there are health facilities provided uh, in these areas, and there are thousands of small micro enterprises as well, people making a living, creating wealth, 
uh, partly to get by. The difficulty is them getting access then to the funds to grow their business from being you know, a tailoring shop with one man, one woman, and one uh, sewing machine to grow it to become a textile manufacturing outfit with dozens of people producing clothes. That's the critical leap. But the innovation is there. What it needs is that sort of support for uh, these entrepreneurs. They're hugely entrepreneurial places, these uh, shanty towns, because everybody is having to find ways to survive. And that is, uh, for me, the hope for the future. And the Royal Geographical Society is, I think, actually supporting a researcher to work out how the economies of these shanty towns work, because they're quite sophisticated, the economies there. There's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of capital mobilization, even though it's very small. And in somewhere like Kenya, the situation was transformed by availability of mobile money through M-Pesa, a mobile money transfer system introduced on the back of mobile phones by Safaricom. And this has been a, a global innovation. Uh, the Kenyans have a more sophisticated mobile money system than most other countries in the world. And it has really helped these small-scale businesses uh, manage their money and be in a position to grow. It's one reason the Kenyan economy is doing relatively well still. Technology, by the sounds of it, has had a very important impact on, on development. You've mentioned mobile money there in the Kenyan context. Is that an example of one of the greatest impacts on African development in East Africa? Yes. I mean, Africa skipped a technological generation. It was when I first went there in the uh, 70s, it was almost impossible to get a landline. And if you could, it was very unreliable. And uh, mobile phones came in and spread like wildfire, fastest rate of growth in the spread of mobile phones. And uh, as we explained in our lecture last year, there is an incredibly high uh, penetration rate. So there in a country like Ghana, there is one mobile phone per member of population. Now, that means you know, some people have three or four and some have none. But nevertheless, it's a very high penetration rate. And this is a basis not just of social exchange, but of economic value creation. Uh, farmers use it to check the prices and uh, which markets to take their produce to. Social media is used for political purposes. There's a, a very good uh, book by Manjala Nyabola called Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, about the impact of social media on the Kenyan political system. And uh, it has also uh, changed social relations. Uh, in that people can remain in touch with the family back home in the rural area uh, much more easily and with the diaspora overseas. And this is a very important thing because one reason Britain needs to have a better understanding of Africa is because we have quite a large population of African origin here in the UK, a British uh, population. And the links between the African diaspora here in the UK and Africa, their home countries, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, is very, very close. And that can also then help build business because business is always built on trusted networks. And social media, modern technology can enable you to do that. It also is having uh, real benefits 
in the high-tech industry because you can get computer programmers in Nigeria, in Kenya, uh, who can work from there, uh, help your business here in the UK, the US, in Europe, wherever, and in, in a seamless, seamless web. And that is helping uh, growth in Africa as well. So understanding the way that technology has transformed the way people interact and the way business is done is very important to uh, in planning development for countries like Africa and for uh, business relations between Britain and Africa. Finally, returning to the, the core theme of, of our conversation today about African realities, um, some of the realities are, of course, true for the continent. I wonder if we could spend a moment just quickly summarising, highlighting which ones you think are. We, we've mentioned diasporas uh, and we've talked at length about the level of innovation in some of the urban areas. Are there any others? Culture is the area where African innovation is most dynamic and having most global impact uh, in music, in art, in literature. Um, Africa has had uh, traditions over centuries of artistic innovation. And now this is reaching a global stage. And as we know from this country, uh, culture is big business. And it is not a coincidence that Nigeria's film industry based in Nollywood, is one of the fastest growing economic sectors in the country. Uh, everybody thinks of Nigeria as an oil producer. Well, it's a film producer too. And the quality is improving. Music, again, has always had a huge impact uh, across the world since the 1960s, since people became aware of the dynamism. And African rap artists, uh, Malian musicians are global figures. That is an area that is often overlooked. I suppose many people, though, see development historically as moving from agriculture into industry and then into services. And in the same way that Africa leapfrogged landlines and went straight to mobiles, there's a degree to which it is leapfrogging over the manufacturing sector uh, straight to services. Now, whether you can build a fully sustainable economy without that sort of middle manufacturing is one of the big questions being asked. And some countries like Ethiopia that are investing very heavily in agribusiness um, and uh, manufacturing because they see this as necessary way to create the jobs, to employ the people, the young people who are coming out of school now. And Africa's demographic growth is one of the driving forces, both in growth and in creating political challenges that the governments are going to have to meet in that there are risk being a lot of uh, reasonably well-educated but unemployed young people, unless they can expand either manufacturing jobs or service jobs uh, in some way to absorb this demographic bulge that is coming up. So there are a lot of challenges still, but uh, there are a lot of new ways of responding to those challenges. I mean, not everybody can get a job in the film industry in Nigeria. We still need um, a lot of enterprise, but there is a, a lot of opportunity there. For example, Nigeria still imports a very large proportion, about 30, 40% of its food needs. And there is land there that could grow it. 
So we're actually also looking for more agricultural entrepreneurs. Um, they prefer to call it that than farmer these days, because then you get young people. If, it's, if you're an agricultural entrepreneur, that has status. And people are concerned about status as well as money. Anyway, so there's, there's a lot of innovation going on. And what tends to be lacking is the funding to support it. And that's where the outside world uh, needs to have confidence in Africa and see Africa as it really is, a hive of uh, innovation and opportunity. Okay, there will still be disasters, still wars break out, people can't agree. Um, droughts happen, climate change is, is a reality for the terrible floods in era, droughts in the Sahel. Um, and so life isn't necessarily getting easier, but the tools for meeting those challenges exist, and uh, they exist in Africa. If a geographer listening to this wanted to learn more about um, African culture, are they able to access the Royal African Society's Film Africa series that you mentioned a moment ago? Absolutely. Um, this year, obviously, we had to adapt circumstances, and a lot of our films were available online through the British Film Institute's uh, online player, the FI player, it's called. Um, some, I think, are still available there. So they were sort of limited for the duration of the festival. But go to the Royal African Society website, just type in Royal African Society and you'll find it. And there are links there to Film Africa. And next year we will have our literary festival, they alternate, um, called Africa Rights. That will be in September next year, where again, we get the uh, most um, innovative and exciting new African uh, writing coming up. But we have a regular series of talks on all aspects of uh, African society, culture, economy, and politics. So there are always uh, events for anyone interested in Africa that you can find. And uh, there's good guys on the website and my occasional blogs on current affairs. Great. Thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. Not at all. And uh, I hope you uh, enjoy reading the, the book, by the way, is called Imperialism and Development, the East African Grand Nut Scheme and its Legacy. Thanks again. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.